0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by gray wolf press publisher of barn eight, the new novel by Deb Olin unfurth. Barn eight is a uh, vegan's ocean 11. It stars a million chickens it's about a group of washed-up radicals trying to find redemption by attempting the most ambitious heist in animal liberation history. This is a wry and brilliant novel, painstakingly researched and daringly imaginative. It covers chicken intelligence, bird evolution, factory farm conditions, and so much more. Warning, it might make you a vegan. Barn 8, the new novel by Deb olin Unfirth, available now from Grey Wolf Press. What? Hey, what's going on everybody? How are you? I'm Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. It's nice to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles. My guest today is April Davila. She has a novel out on Kensington Press called 142 Ostriches. 142 Ostriches. (laughs) Why is there something like hypnotizing about saying that? 142 ostriches. So, uh, great time meeting her. Get ready for that conversation. I do have some mail I want to get through. A lot of people have been writing to me. A listener named Maria writes, "Hey Brad, I was listening to episode 627, episode 627 the other day, and I wanted to thank you for the way you talked about the younger generation and the student loan issues." I am basically the person you described with around the same amount of debt that you mentioned. I have no idea how I will ever be able to afford having a child. And I had no idea I was making the choice basically to not have children when I went to college. It leaves me feeling very conflicted at times. I would not want to have a child until I was in a good place with my finances. But I have no idea if that will ever happen. And even if it does, it will most likely be because my parents die. And if that happens, I can't help but think I'll be too old to have a child. In general, it's a very scary thing to think about. I just really wanted to thank you for the way you talked about the issue. It made me feel seen and heard in a way that I don't always when these issues are discussed. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for the show. Signed, Maria. Well, thank you, Maria. That's a lovely note. And I'm glad that uh, what I said resonated. I'm, you know, I'm just... uh, I'm just starting, I think, in some ways to fully wrap my head around, you know, what, uh, younger people are up against, including my own children. I I'm try, I try to be sensitive to that. I'm trying to understand what's going on. Like, uh, you know, not just politically, but like, uh, emotionally and psychologically, like, what is it that's animating people? And I think if people are confused about young people today, They would do well to, uh, consider things like student loan debt, cost of living, cost of housing, cost of childcare, wage stagnation, you know, like it's, uh, it's quite a world we've left to the young. We need to do better. And, uh, it is scary and sad, you know, we should be, we should be doing better than this. So. Uh, I'm glad that I said it, and I'm glad that you heard it, Maria. Thank you for listening. A listener named Nick says, uh, Hi, Brad. So I'm listening to the latest episode with Emily Nemmons as we speak, and I just got to the part where you go to the old Yankee Stadium to see a Mariners game in 1999. As you kept describing the game, I realized that I was there as well. I recall the Ken Griffey home run that you mentioned and that it was a cloudy early spring Saturday in New York. The game was interminable close to four hours long. I also got Alex Rodriguez's autograph during batting practice that day. He was so young and pre-steroids. What a coincidental intersection and a fond memory. I'm glad baseball season is almost here. Best, Nick. P.S. As a Mets fan, I hate the Yankees for the record. Well, what do you know? That's wild. Uh, that is indeed the game that I was at and it was a cloudy, uh, Saturday. Though I think, uh, I had worse seats than you. If you got Alex, if you were like hanging with Alex Rodriguez pre steroids, I was getting like beer thrown at me in the uh, bleachers (laughs) and I don't remember that the game was long, but I guess I got pretty drunk. I was young, sat there for four hours. (laughs) Um, so thanks for writing. That's uh, that's totally wild. Uh, I got a letter from a listener, uh, in Paris, France, who calls herself, uh, Bush Eye. Her Twitter handle is at unlike Lily Bush Eye. Uh, here's what Busheye has to say. Dear Brad, I'm a fan of our show. I'm a fan of your show. And I also love the Paris review. And I was so ready for some great insights into literature and culture with this last episode. But I found Emily Nemmons to be a staggering bore, just relentless. Humorless narration of self. Wow. Thanks for the wonderful work you do. Signed, Busheye. Ouch. Jesus. I I don't agree. Uh, I found Emily Nemmons to be a totally game guest and uh, great in conversation and uh, not at all humorless. She is shy. I did pick up on that. She said as much herself. But, uh, you know, if you found the interview to be boring, uh, and, uh, as you put it like relentless humorless narration of self, then I have to take the lion's share of the responsibility. I'm the host of the show. She was just answering my questions. I was asking her about herself. I got to defend, uh, Emily here. A listener named Matt writes, Brad, your interview with Emily Nemmons talking baseball was one of the more enjoyable podcasts you've put out shooting the shit about our fading national pastime was extremely refreshing considering most of your conversations veer into politics which is just tired and depressing at this point also you seem to be in a pretty good mood for this podcast which is awesome but i also enjoy the cranky version of you ranting against technology and society while shaking your fist against or shaking your fist at the sky can you please put out a supplemental podcast so I can get my fix? Signed, Matt. Yeah, I like talking about baseball. I like, I like when I talk about stuff that I don't normally talk about. I also like talking about podcasts, or er, uh, podcasts, politics, and I uh, will push back that it is tired. I do think it's depressing, but I don't think it's tired. I think you got to keep talking about it. I don't know what else we're going to do. What do we just all shut up and not talk about it? Let it just unfold. Let the powers that be do what they will. I've I've said this before, but you know, when I was growing up or, you know, over the years, I've heard people say, you know, you should never talk politics. You should never talk religion. You should never talk money. And I disagree entirely. I think we should talk about all of these things more. Got to deal with shit. You got to confront it. Got to work through the pain. You know, we got to get, we got to be uncomfortable, get in there with people, especially people with whom we disagree. We got to communicate. It's got to be a discourse and a dialogue, Are discourse and dialogue, the same thing. I don't think so. You know what I mean? We got to communicate. I also find it interesting that you thought that I was in a good mood for this podcast, which, uh, I certainly was. I think I'm in a good mood for most of these interviews. I guess I do have a cranky side. Maybe my baseline mood, like good mood, is just on a lower register than the average person. And this visual of me shaking my fist at the sky. I don't know. Kind of. I guess that means I'm old. Only old men shake their fist at the sky, right? It's never a young man. Damn. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is uh, April Davila. Her new novel from Kensington Press is called 142 Ostriches. Say it with me now. 142 Ostriches. Really enjoyed meeting her, and I hope you like the conversation. Here she is, folks. This is April Davila.
1: My mom was an illustrator. She actually illustrated most of the wine labels that came out of Sonoma County in the 80s. Really? Yeah. So like, what are up. some,
0: wait, would I know any of them?
1: Oh, I don't think any of them are still in circulation, but I have, we have, like, in the family, we have collections of them. My, um, my mom did the Harvest Fair poster. If there. there's a Harvest Fair every year for the all the wine sellers, they do a big wine tasting. And she did the poster for that. Um, so grew up very much in the wine industry.
0: Yeah, like, so your family, like, your mother was illustrating for it. Was your dad like, working in wine? Oh, or?
1: no. My dad was a helicopter pilot. Oh. He he wasn't around when I was little. He was flying all over the place. So he was in Saudi Arabia. He was in Alaska. I mean, my parents divorced when I was eight, but like my memory of them together... Is not really past like age two or three. It's very foggy because he just wasn't around. Was he military? He started as military. He started as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Okay. Um, he did lift out. So he had the very scary job of flying into the hot zones, lifting out the people who were bleeding and oh trying to get God. them back yeah. alive. So yeah. he was very fortunate to survive that, but not without his scars. So
0: Like PTSD and stuff. Yeah.
1: Some really hard stuff that it took him a while to deal with. So, um, he kind of felt like he always had to be on the move. So he would just always take jobs in different parts of the world. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until like 99, he fell in love with this woman who's now my stepmom. And and he's like, we got a, I got a job in the South Pacific. Let's go. And she's like, no, (laughs) maybe you stay here and we'll get you some help. And so he did. He got some therapy and settled in, Uh, changed his life. Isn't
0: it interesting how we respond to uh, trauma and difficulty and suffering. Everybody's got their own way, I guess. But like, yeah. this is interesting. that Your dad's like, just got to keep moving. Just yeah. going to keep out trying to outrun this thing. Yeah. Going to go to Tahiti. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's not, maybe the problem isn't in Tahiti.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he took, job, I mean, we spent my sister and I two summers in the South Pacific where he was working at the air force base in, um, the Marshall islands on this tiny island called Kwajalein which was kind of a trip. There's definitely a story there, but um, I always swore I'd never write a memoir. So I have to reconcile that before. I need Why? To it's too messy. Yeah.
0: Reality I'm trying to write one right now. And it's like, I'm like, how do I do it in a way that's funny?
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the thing, right? You, cause life has humor, but then the things we're drawn to write about are not necessarily funny in and of themselves. And so how do you balance those and still find a through line of a narrative? That would make it interesting for anyone to read plus
0: it's all bullshit
1: and it's all bullshit
0: i don't remember anything
1: (laughs) i have the worst memory i
0: just have these stories i tell myself about who i think i am that's kind of what my book is now becoming about it's just like i think this is all bullshit see i
1: think that's interesting that i would read okay i i read memoirs they're not usually first on my list but a book like that
0: by the way i'm so easily suggestible i'm like okay that's what it is now (laughs) it's your fault now i would read it okay yeah so uh but you had that's interesting. So a little bit itinerant summers with dad in far flung locations. Yeah. Like where else? Any any place else besides That was
1: really the only place we spent any extended time. Um he... how, do you, how do
0: you even get there?
1: Oh, uh we went by military cargo plane, which is a trip cuz I'd only ever been on a plane once or twice at that point. But military cargo plane there's no windows. So was, there's like three passenger seats with their backs kind of against the wall over the pilot Yeah.
0: I've seen those on movies. Yeah.
1: And you're basically just staring at cargo. And there was, this is pre-iPad, pre-iPad. There was like, I mean, I brought a book, but it was like 12 hours of just staring at cargo. Oh my God. It was a long trip. And my memory was a very long trip.
0: All right. Are there soldiers on board and stuff?
1: No, it was just like cargo Cargo. and the pilot. There was no flight attendants. There were no snacks. Nothing. Nothing.
0: Is there a bathroom?
1: There must've been. Yeah. Yeah. Again, my memory is terrible. They just like open a
0: hatch. (laughs) Just like, good luck. Let her rip. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
0: Well, that's interesting. So then Santa Rosa, growing up, your mom is basically single momming.
1: Yeah. And illustrating. And an illustrator and an artist very much in her own right. She was a painter. Um, She's since moved into sculpture. She's a sculptor now.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by people who sculpt.
1: It's a whole different art form. Yeah. Because you have to like walk around it.
0: And you have to get the stuff, and yeah. it's messy. It doesn't
1: transport easily.
0: What is she, what kind, what's her medium? Like, what uh, is she,
1: she works in paper clay, which is an interesting... It's actually, as clay goes, it's one of the lighter weight clays. Um, and she likes it because you can fire it multiple times. Like, if you fire it and you add something to it, you can fire it again. Um,
0: wait, okay. So, wait. You fire it, meaning it hardens. Yes. But then you can... F- add something to it, meaning like more paper clay or another, yeah, another something and then, more
1: paper clay usually,
0: and then fire it again. And then it won't affect the original right glaze or whatever. I'm well, so... and she
1: doesn't even work with glaze. Uh, she, for a while she was playing with, um, like actual fire. She would fire them in pits at the beach and like throw different things into the fire. Cause it, the smoke would color the clay in interesting ways. It's called pit firing. Um, it
0: seems apropos for somebody from Santa Rosa, right?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh,
0: with the fires? So, I mean, I don't mean to. Don't... Oh,
1: oh, if you mean. Oh, yeah, all of that happened. So most of my family has moved away from Santa Rosa, but I have a lot of friends who are still there. And the stories they told about those fires were just crazy. Yeah,
0: no, it was no joke. Yeah. Um, but the, your mom and uh, family moved away.
1: Yeah, everyone, in fact, everyone has left California at this point. We're the last ones still here. Where are they at? Dad moved to Northern Idaho with my stepmom, and they're just living the beautiful retired life. Oh. And um, my mom. Actually, my mom just moved back to Oakland. She was up in Washington State with my sister for a few years, and then decided it was too cold for her. She um she worked out of the garage, and so with the clay and the wet and the cold, it was like her hands were just always frozen. She yeah. said, I have to go back to California now. <laughs>
0: what uh What is your sister doing up in Washington?
1: She's an acupuncturist. Oh. Yeah. Okay, None so of us have normal jobs. No, you right? have like a
0: groovy <laughs> like kind of uh. This, like Northern California seems like like a good yes. like like a fertile place for people who like to sculpt and do acupuncture and write yeah. books. Yeah. Uh, but it was obviously encouraged. I mean, if your mom is a, yeah. is an illustrator, she's not going to be too put off by you, like saying that you like books. And... Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, even my dad, who not necessarily an artist, but in, in retirement has written now two memoirs about his times flying in Vietnam and then in uh, Laos oh, for really? America. Published? Yeah. Uh, Self-published, but he's done really well with them. I mean, he sold like over 5,000 copies of his first book. Just going to reunions and just like trading 20s for books, just like selling them like hotcakes. It was
0: interesting, impressive. Well, but those stories need to be told. I mean, like I think uh, especially the people who lived through it as opposed to like the reporters who are embedded or whatever it is. Though I should say that the Vietnam War seems unique, at least in my media memory of it, for how much access like unfettered access the media had like well, it the footage seemed like
1: technology you... was better too that was like the first time i not know you could like carry a camera right i i don't know too much about it but it seems like the equipment was more accessible did
0: you ever see the ken burns documentary on vietnam
1: no i you know i have this weird kind of aversion yeah it's pretty vietnam intense stuff.
0: it's pretty intense yeah. but the footage like the, the archival footage and the newsreel and the on the ground footage is extraordinary.
1: Yeah. It's kind of terrifying.
0: Yeah. And then I
1: think about my dad living through that and I think that's the aversion. I just, it's too real. Too much. Yeah.
0: You think so. Like you're never going to go there writing about it. Doesn't like, because no. I mean, it would have to, it would have to occupy a certain portion of your imagination because it's so central to his identity. Certainly. Um,
1: but the interesting thing about it is that where it ties to my dad's identity is, the reason he wasn't around. So it must feel like I'm like mad at Vietnam. Yeah. Like you're the reason my dad was.
0: Well, sure. Yeah. That makes total sense to me. Fuck the Vietnam book. Don't write that. <laughs> I'd love idea. to go there
1: with my dad someday, but no, not no, yeah. again.
0: I had a friend who, uh, his dad was a pilot in Vietnam and I just remember playing in his basement when I was a young, young boy in a uh, suburban Milwaukee and his like uh, helicopter pilot helmet He was in the basement. He had like his, I think his nickname was like (laughs) Roadrunner and he had like a cartoon painting of the Roadrunner on the side of it. Classic. Yeah. Yeah. We used to put it on. I was like five years old or whatever. But, um, I had another friend who his dad was my soccer coach and I distinctly remember him being like, Vietnam was fine. He had this like crazy attitude. He's like, it was fun. You just had to have your mind right. That's what I remember him telling me. So maybe he was Wonder bearing where his mind is now. Yeah. I'd be very curious. Yeah. Uh. I mean, but he was a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't know. And I also don't know, you never know what people's experiences. I mean, or at least I didn't as a child get the details of what their experiences were. Right. I mean, if you're doing lift out from hot zones. Yeah. Or if you're like a frontline infantryman, your experience is going to be a lot different than if you were like some kind of technology guy in yeah. Saigon or something. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: So. And location was a big part of it. I mean, my dad's second book was interesting for the fact that it was actually harder to read because there's a lot more uh, like sex, drugs, rock and roll. Like he, when he was a pilot in Laos, yeah, like they they had so they had more time off than they had flying time and they were like the ladies flocked to them. And I was like, dad, I'm just going to pretend I didn't read that chapter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and these are young know.
0: boys though. These are young boys.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: That's the thing about it. Yeah. They're 18 years old.
1: I think my dad was... 19 and they called him the old man. I mean, these, they were really young,
0: really young. And like, if you're seeing that much horror, it makes total sense to me that you would be self-medicating. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do? Yeah. And you're, and when you have that much downtime, you're in some sweltering jungle, I'd be smoking weed.
1: What else are you going to do?
0: I would. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe like trying to flee, trying to get out of there, like find somebody to take me home. (laughs) Um, so, you read these books, though, like it wasn't oh, yeah, you skipped yeah. certain parts, but you read them, yeah, yeah, so that's interesting. maybe, maybe it's from your dad that you get your writerly nature, maybe, and as a kid growing up, um like in santa rosa i've I've never been there.
1: it's north of San Francisco, about an hour drive.
0: I'm picturing beautiful,
1: it was really beautiful, well, and we lived kind of on the outskirts of the town, kind of a budding wine country, so, and we lived in this old Victorian house when my folks bought it, had a bunch of land, but they ended up selling off the land. Um, But the house remains, so it's a strange neighborhood. Now you drive up, and it's like 1980s development, suburban, and then this 1880s Victorian farmhouse with no farm anymore. It's just this big, creepy house. Wow. Uh, But it was right on the edge of where it would just roll off into vineyards and hillsides. And How much much land did it come with? Oh, I don't know. I've asked my dad, and he's like, I don't want to think about it. (laughs)
0: okay <clears throat> my wife uh her family like her her side of the family um on her mom's side is like farm people yeah like hardcore from where like homesteaders kansas
1: oh okay hardcore homestead
0: like an outhouse yeah like that kind of farming like, uh,
1: what were they called sod busters
0: maybe something <laughs> like that they busted some sod but i mean like just uh middle of nowhere yeah kind of thing and she, I, I forget the exact details, but somebody in her family owned a Napa Valley property ah. bought when it was dirt cheap. When
2: Napa was nothing. When
0: Napa was nothing. Yeah. And sold it. <laughs> You know, it was one of those things where you look in the rearview mirror and you're going, oh my God, this would have been worth a fortune Yeah, and it's gone. I mean, this is way before I even met my wife, but she still complains about it. She's still bitter.
1: (laughs) I have a good friend in San Francisco whose family had the same situation, but for whatever reason didn't sell it. And so now whenever we get together, we go up to her place in Napa and it's like so fancy and posh, but it was just a little cabin up in a valley back when they bought it. Lucky us. See, Uh, I
0: want to. I want to, this is like, uh, you hear these stories every once in a while about somebody who like buys a painting from some guy, right. they're living in some shitty apartment in Brooklyn. They trade a painting for like food. Right. It turns out it like their neighbor was like Basquiat or something. And yeah. you know, now they're sitting on this like $25 million painting. Yeah. Or you have a cabin in Napa Valley Yeah. or you bought like a bunch of land for a song and it turns out to be the, like, the greatest investment of your life. Like, yeah. That's got to feel so good. It's got to feel really good. <laughs> like I always you imagine just like
1: taking a deep breath and be like, okay, I'm done.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just, I'm done. Just do whatever I
2: want to do from I, now on. I got
0: phenomenally lucky and like, you know, I, I don't even know how you, I don't know how you could possibly credit that to skill. No. Unless you were like really like aggressively buying up everything and taking on a lot of risk. Yeah. But I don't think most people who, you know, there probably weren't that many people who did that. Maybe a few.
1: They probably exist. But then they're like professionals. That's what they do.
0: I think too, like it shouldn't, uh, I mean, I'm going to go off on like a real estate tangent, but if you think back to like mid 20th century before the country like was completely built out and maybe it's not completely built out now, but if you just think in terms of like topography and climate, you should just go, like if you had money, you should have just gone around to all the really beautiful places in the country with good weather
2: and just bought property. Yeah. Cause that that's where
0: people want to be. Why is it so complicated? Yeah. Northern California back in like the sixties and seventies when,
1: when you could buy like a big old chunk of land for yeah, not too much. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's what I mean. Hindsight's 2020. 20. Exactly. It seems so clear in retrospect. Um, so as a kid, uh, growing up in Santa Rosa, like you had sort of like free reign, I'm picturing you just being able to kind of go off and Ride your bike and hike around, you're out in nature.
1: We were pretty close to nature. I um well and and minimal supervision. Yeah, my mom was really busy. She was single mom, trying to be an artist at the same time. So she more or less trusted us not to get into trouble, which you know, didn't get caught. Are you eldest or eldest, yeah.
0: You are. So you were like sort of the ringleader.
1: Yeah. I wasn't the oldest in the neighborhood, though. Wendy Minor was our ringleader. Oh, so Girl you're passing the off the street. blame. <laughs> <laughs> she was older by like three years, so she would usually come up with our whatever devious plans we were implementing. But how much,
0: I mean, you don't strike me as somebody who got into like really bad stuff.
1: No, nothing terrible. I, was all, I mean, that's the thing when I look back on my childhood in Santa Rosa is that it was small enough to feel like I was getting into trouble and, and like, big enough that it, it wasn't really. I mean, everything I did was so not a big deal, yeah. like cutting class to go smoke a little pot. Like, yeah, I would have gotten in trouble, but I wasn't like end your life, go to jail kind of trouble. No, not yeah.
0: But you know, place that I grew up, that would have been a big deal. I feel like- Cutting Santa class R- to
1: smoke a little pot.
0: Yeah. Or smoking yeah. pot when I was growing up. I mean, that was portrayed- but it was a much
1: bigger job deal back then.
0: But not in Northern California. It, Every, really. Everybody in your town was stoned. <laughs> Probably.
2: right <laughs> I
1: remember reaching a point as a pothead and just assuming everyone else was high, like yeah. that I never got paranoid because I just always had this like, oh, they're high too. I'd walk by a teacher and be like, "Oh, she's high too <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they weren't in retrospect, but I just assumed everyone was yeah, and
0: you, like there's also that phase where like you're watching t v and you convince yourself that the people on t v are somehow high, like the guy behind the <laughs> news desk or something the guy on sports you never Center. know you never know yeah. maybe that's the you know. I don't understand people who can be, like, professionally functional. I can't.
1: uh, Like, as an adult now, especially as a parent, the idea is just so repulsive.
0: Well, Or just, like, crazy. But some people do.
1: Lots of people do.
0: And, like, do well. Like, I think it just depends on neurochemistry. But, like, there are people for whom it, like, normalizes them. Yeah. I think.
1: I have friends who say that. Yeah. It is not the case for me. No. No. I'm glad I had all those experiences because now... I don't feel like I missed anything. Yeah. But I can kind of close the door and be like, eh, it's not working for me
2: anymore. Right,
0: right. Well, no, that's the thing. Like, it's nice to have, like, test boundaries and really kind of uh, push yourself into a little bit of excess when you're young. Cause that way you don't have to look back with regret and be yeah. like, I was so young. I could have done so much. And yeah. If you did that stuff, then you can say, well, I take that box.
1: Well, and especially as a writer. I heard, I forget who I heard say this, but she said that the worst thing. Someone who wants to write, the worst thing they can do is get a degree, their undergraduate degree in writing. She's like, you should be doing other things or you won't have anything to write about. Because if you study writing, what are you doing? You're sitting in your room, reading books, sitting in your room, writing stories. You know, you're not going out and kind of making the mistakes and meeting the weird people that will later be fodder for your stories.
0: I don't disagree. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't even know if people who really want to write need to go to school. I agree. Just read a bunch. And if you can travel.
1: Yeah, that's good advice.
0: And like maybe move around a little bit. And I mean, if you can't like go travel the world, like at least just bounce around and like experience some different places. Yeah. You know, do some weird jobs.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, like use your twenties well, basically. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Don't be afraid to make bad choices in those early years. Cause those lead to the most interesting. Did stories. you make bad choices? you feel?
2: Yeah. Do you
0: have any regrets? I've been thinking about this <sighs> a lot. Like sometimes I look at my life and I'm like, I feel like I made a mess.
1: Your life seems pretty lovely. I
0: know. But I mean, don't you ever have that feeling though? Like it could be, did I do it right? Did I do, did I use my time well? Did I make the right choices? You know, like.
1: I think more than regrets, I have frustrations that I didn't use my time well. Um, but I can't regret anything because I'm really happy with where I am. And I think I couldn't be here if I didn't do all that other stuff. Right. But I do, I do get frustrations of like, you know, I'm 42 and I'm publishing my first book and I always kind of knew I wanted to write. What was I waiting for? I could have started writing 10 years ago, you were waiting, 20 years ago.
0: Waiting to be 42, I guess. I guess. Yeah. I think one of the things that I have most anxiety about on a consistent basis is whether or not I'm using my time well. Yeah. That's what I, I'm. Cause there's of, so little of it. There's so little of it. And I'm like, uh, you know, like I just have this, like, I can sometimes feel myself like tightening and getting uh, anxious because I'm like, you know, it feels like there's a almost infinite choice in a certain way and I don't want to fuck it up. Yeah. I want to make the right calls. Yeah. Like you have to, like, I think, I feel like sometimes people in their lives who, I don't know, wind up with a, place in napa
1: (laughs) (laughs) that was luck
0: i know but they buy that cabin they had to buy that cabin that's true they had to take that risk like like those kinds of decisions like some people are they making lucky decisions or are they just like better decision makers than the rest of us
1: that's a good question i feel like so much comes down to gut too i don't know how much gut is just a different word for luck but i've definitely made some calls in my life where i wasn't like people around me were like, "Are you sure you're doing the right thing?" And I was like, "It just feels like this is the right thing." And then it, I was right. So I feel like if you listen, like the gut is a, is very telling. I have the same thing when you talk about you know the, our limited time and how we spend it. Having kids, I think, compli or complicates it because I want to be with my kids, but I also I could write so much more if I ignored them. But then when I'm hanging out with them, I just I get this feeling in my gut of like, oh, this is actually right where I want to be right now. Right. And I'll get to the writing and it'll be there, but the kids won't always be here. And so having those moments with them. So going with the gut, that's, that's where I land.
0: I need to, yeah. But I mean, you have to be tuned into it. Yeah. Gotta have like, I feel like, uh, like I'm reading this book, this memoir by uh, Marina Abramovich, and she's constantly having these like magical experiences where she's like, I saw, you know, I'm making this up, but she's like, I saw, I looked up at the sky just as I was wondering what I should do. And like <laughs> suddenly like a bird flew over my head and like, I was like, oh my God. And it was a vulture, or, you know, whatever it is. And she's constantly having this. And I'm like, I never have this.
2: I don't have anything. I don't like have that.
0: magical experiences. Oh, yeah. Am I off? Well, but off? I don't believe
1: in magic either. So I, that's probably the first step to having magical experiences.
0: But I mean, like she has these, uh, Tibetan monks come stay at her house in Amsterdam and they stay at her house for like 10 days. And then at the end of it, they do, I think what's called a puja. Where they do like four hours of chanting and prayer, and like uh-huh. walking around and lighting incense, and they're trying to drive all the evil spirits out of the house. And like an hour after they left, her uh, tenant she had a tenant on one floor of this like high you know it's one of those tall uh, Amsterdam
2: yeah uh, kind of leany ones yeah yeah.
0: So the tenants come and they're like we're moving out, huh. and it turned out that they're you know she could rent it again at a much higher rate that would pay her mortgage. Like hmm. an hour after the monks left.
1: Interesting. Th- this
0: is just one little story. And I'm like, shit like that does not happen to me. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? Am I not evolved? I guess I'm just not evolved. I'm a you lesser just being. You need 10
1: monks to come stay in your home yeah. for... And that's for... the other
0: thing. I don't have access to monks.
1: <laughs> Where does one get monks these what days? What kind of I life know? am I
0: living? I need to get out and engage with the world more or something. But it does like make me feel anxious on a certain level. And then I'm like, I shouldn't compare myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to this performance artist in Amsterdam. But, uh, I also sometimes wonder how much I'm like, is this true? Am I being bullshitted? Is this like a self mythology thing, which sometimes does happen in memoir either intentionally or not. Right. And she is a performance artist, you know, so I find myself vexed.
2: Well, and
1: I've talked with memoirists who, when you pull them aside off the record, they're very quick to say, well, it kind of happened like that, it but I made a good story. You have to make a good story.
0: I've been trying to write a memoir for it is such bullshit. I don't, unless you have like, I, well, there are people with incredible recall.
1: There are, they exist.
0: They exist. So their memoir will be less bullshit than mine because I have terrible If recall. they choose
1: to be honest to their memory. I mean, even that, there's so many levels of translation. What do you remember? What are you willing to discuss? Right. What does your editor then change? Because it makes it a better story. It's, there are a lot of layers in there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, okay. So when do you start writing? Are you a kid writer?
1: I always used to write little short stories and stuff, but it came easily. So I dismissed it. I don't know why. I don't know why I did that.
0: Did you have encouragement Were people like you're good at this?
1: Uh, yeah, I even, I mean, not as much when I was very young, but I remember in high school, my junior year English teacher said, I signed you up for AP English next year. You should take that. And I was like, why? That sounds like a lot of work. I don't know why. Um, you were like
0: firing up a joint, like really (laughs) serious. was (laughs)
2: was
1: <laughs> um but that ap english class actually ended up being one of the best writing classes i ever took uh-huh. i actually just reconnected with my english teacher she's going to come to my reading when i go um, back in my hometown
0: that's like the ultimate triumph right oh
1: my gosh it was so gratifying yeah um
0: not only for you but for her or for him. well yeah her yeah
1: um that she liked it and that she's like proud of me. I don't know why that should matter can so imagine, much, but, no, but it listen, does. Can you
0: imagine being a high school AP English teacher and having one of your former students publish a novel? That's about as good as it gets.
1: Yeah. Oh, and I thanked her in the acknowledgments. Ugh. So
0: even better. Now she's got to come to your reading. <laughs> she has to come. <laughs> by the way, that is her. that is an excellent way to make people feel emotionally obligated to attend your reading is to thank them in the acknowledgments. Put their names in the book. Maybe you should just have like ten pages of acknowledgments. And
1: by the way, and you're the... all coming to my reading.
0: <laughs> Um, so, okay. So you get encouraged, you're reading, I'm assuming some books at least.
1: Yeah. I was always a ferocious reader. Uh, I mean, in college, I actually got my undergrad in biology, so I didn't have a lot of time for fun reading. So it was probably the years where I read the least in terms of fiction. Where'd you go to college? Scripps college. Where's that? Uh, it's out east of here in Claremont. Oh, right. Uh, most people know the graduate uh, facility in San Diego because they do a lot of oceanography. And I actually... Um, I did study marine ecology. That was my focus.
0: So you didn't take, right. You weren't a writer. You didn't take English. No,
1: but like, it was funny. Cause as a scientist, you know, Scripps is a big, uh, pre like 99% percent premed. all the science majors. Uh, and, um, so whenever we had to do labs, everyone wanted to be partners with me because I love doing the write-ups and I was always happy to have someone else actually do the work. Cause I wasn't a very, I wasn't a great scientist. I'm not detail oriented enough. I, not exacting enough in yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. But I always really, I loved the story of science because it's really all it is. Are these like fascinating explanations of how things work in our world. Um, and I've always loved the ocean. So that's where I gravitated towards.
0: My wife wanted to be a marine biologist when she was, I feel like that's somewhat common.
1: I think it is, but like, for good reason. I yeah. mean, I still have like, I've been talking about regrets. There's like this little voice of like, maybe you should have been, you were so close. You could but, have yeah, been a marine biologist. I say this,
0: my yeah. wife, uh, it was terrible at math and science. So I went, I want to say she went to school and became a communications major. Yeah. She, yeah. Re- she realized it. Yeah. It was like a teenage well, thing.
1: That's what I realized when I graduated was I went out into the world and started doing research jobs and my data just always sucked. Like people had to go back and redo my data because it just wasn't careful enough. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so where, then I, like,
0: what, what like, give me a, an example of a job.
1: Oh, so like I worked for a woman briefly in Northern California who was doing, um, a survey of the trout population in the creeks and streams up there. And uh, it wasn't a good fit for a lot of reasons. The trout? P- <laughs> trout. Um, but there's, I'm also deathly allergic to poison oak. And if you're going to get close to anywhere where trout grows in Northern California, you are tromping through poison oak. So uh-huh. after about a week, I was just covered in poison oak rashes. And I called her, I was like, I just don't think I can do this. And she's like, that's fine. I have to redo all your data anyway. And she was so angry. And I don't really even, she never explained why it was so bad, but I don't know, that seemed to be the kind of feedback I got. So then I What floundered. was your gut telling
0: you after that experience? Like, maybe this isn't
1: for I was me. too itchy to even <laughs> hear my gut. I was so uncomfortable. And then disappointed that I had done a bad job and that I didn't know why I'd done a bad job. And...
2: I don't
0: know.
1: And then I floundered and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um,
0: Well, so when you went to undergrad to do a biology degree, were you thinking pre-med?
1: No, no. I wanted to do ecology. Okay. Uh, I'm not squeamish about blood, but I wasn't looking to be a doctor.
0: And ecology, you liked it was nature. You were into it. You wanted to save the planet.
1: I like the patterns, the rhythms, the like, everything kind of makes sense in ecology. And if it doesn't make sense, it's just because you haven't got it yet. I mean... There's a rhythm.
0: By the way, April just lit a giant joint just now. Before <laughs> she said, <that. laughs> "I just love the patterns, man."
1: <laughs> I do, though. I mean, if you, you everything works together, and and it just works so well yes. until humans get in there, and then we fuck it all up. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we're doing a good job of that. Yeah. It was just like 65 degrees in Antarctica. Did you see that? I
1: did see that headline. Yeah. I
0: just like that comes across your computer screen, and you're like,
1: what? and 209 mile per hour winds. That last windstorm we got, we've never seen anything like that. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: It's been bad. They had to tie up all the power lines.
1: Yeah. It broke our front fence. Did it? The wind. Yeah. It's fierce.
0: Yeah. So it's a mess. I mean, I, I hope that, uh, like, do you have any hope that science will be able to come up with solutions to like the climate crisis? Are you an optimist in that way?
1: I, science only works insofar as humans implement it.
0: Because so, I, I read another article, this was back when I was still on Twitter, I read an article where it was like, if we just planted four billion trees,
2: right.
0: cl- the climate crisis would be solved. Yeah. And I was like, okay.
2: Let's do it.
0: Let's do it. I'll plant some trees. Yeah. Let's plant some trees.
1: I haven't planted any trees.
0: I uh, planted, we got one planted.
1: You did one. You can
0: get free trees in LA. You can. And I tried to order an olive tree and this was like, it takes a while. Like the, yeah. You ordered and then one day, like seven months later, it shows up. <laughs> Um, but I think like, and I don't know how much validity there is to this 4 billion, or I don't even know if it's 4 billion. It was some like, big number. I remember huge, that. Yeah. yeah. So if this is real, why are we not talking about it? Why aren't we on, like on some big mission to plant forests?
1: Humans are adverse to anything that requires us to break our habits. It just we're doesn't it just feel, habit?
0: And, and maybe I'm thinking in particular about America. I just feel like we're just like lazy yeah. and dumb. And kind of suicidal.
1: Well, and, and, and completely averse to any kind of discomfort, right? You know, if it's, if it's at all inconvenient, like I've, it, you know, you've talked about on the show, like riding your bike and how that's a shift. Like you had to make changes and it's a little inconvenient and yet you made that choice. And I think that's really cool. I, for me, I, um, I quit eating meat and that was kind of my way of feeling like I'm doing something. When I mean, did,
0: when did you do this?
1: It's been like four months now. Okay. And I like me, I don't have any problem like emotionally or sociologically with me, but I just felt like it was something, it was my way of being a little bit uncomfortable to kind of walk my own talk of like, we, yeah. so we all have to get a little uncomfortable. I'm
0: glad to hear that because I, I couldn't agree more. And I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't mean to sound preachy because I'm not trying to say that everybody should do exactly what I should do, but we all have to do something.
1: We have to do something.
0: You can't just like sit there in the status quo manner or continue to live your life in a status quo manner and expect that everybody else should be making the changes. We all
1: like to say, oh, we need to do this, but we mean everybody else. We don't mean us.
0: And and then there's also a part of me that's like, wow, I'm really like retreating in some ways from like normal society. (laughs) Like I don't eat meat. I sold my car. I ride a bike around Los Angeles. (laughs) Uh, uh, Like I'm not on any social media anymore.
2: It's awesome though
0: i'm just like fuck it all i don't want to participate in
1: yeah
2: this <laughs> I, i'm I, I,
1: close I, to getting rid of the car but i i really like my car i, I have narrowed my radius down to like a two-mile radius like i take the kid to school i take the car to grocery shop because i don't want to carry everything home but right. i you know i mean it's that's like my next step
0: you have to you have to um be practical like we do have a car. Yeah. It's like the car that we use to truck the kids around just like you, but we don't have two cars anymore. Yeah. And maybe, you know, it's entirely possible that my work situation could suddenly shift and I'll have to, you know, I'm trying so far, I've been able to do it on a bike Yeah, and on the train, but it, like, it is a little strange going to like a work meeting and you're like a little sweaty and you're like, yeah. Hey guys, like, and they're like, <laughs> how did you get here? And It's like in Culver city. You know, yeah. I'm, like, like I rode the bike to the train and they're just like, wow. Yeah. And like, then I think people sort of think you're weird.
1: Yeah. But you're also kind of planting a seed with that, that it's possible. I hope. And I think that is, I think that's really cool. Actually.
0: You got to be the change you wish to see in the world. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I don't
0: know. You know, I don't know what to do. I was, you know, I think too, like when it comes to social injustice or like the political climate, like broadly speaking, that we find ourselves in, like, I feel like everybody's sort of waiting for somebody to take care of it. Yeah. Like, Oh, the institution, Oh, the house, Oh, the impeachment, Oh, the, this, the, that. And I'm like, I'm starting to believe like the only way it's going to change is if like people are out in the streets in mass in a way that is unprecedented in our modern
2: history.
1: Well, it's out in the streets, but it's also like we were saying with these smaller changes that, that if you know, the Twitter's not good for you. Get off Twitter. Yeah. Quit yeah. being a slave. Yeah.
0: Quit making those guys money off of your brain. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I don't know, you know, people have to earn a living. So it's not like, you know, people have day jobs and it's like, how do you suddenly like, you know, fly <laughs> to Washington and protest for a week or right. how do you, you know, but you've just kind of maybe do it locally, engage in civil acts and, uh, or civil disobedience and
1: do your research before you vote,
0: do your research before you vote, all that stuff. But okay. it just feels like a le- there's got to be a level of, uh, engagement and sacrifice that is an inevitable Part of the equation, and it almost seems like if you don't do it of your own volition, you're going to wind up doing it because you have no choice. Yeah. (laughs) Like at some point, the sacrifices are going to just like happen. Pushed on you. They're going to be pushed on you.
1: Yeah. So well, likely they'll be pushed on our kids. That's the bummer of it.
0: uh, Well, at least like you know, I can be weird dad with the bike, and they can be like, "Well, he tried. He tried. (laughs) (laughs) He will totally point at you.
1: It wasn't my dad."
0: Um, okay, so you go to Scripps College. Yeah, how, how did you wind up at Scripps? I'm just curious. Like, the oh, that's have...
1: funny. You know, I almost didn't even apply anywhere else. And we went to visit, it and I was like, "This is the place." I just knew. A... I just knew that's where I was going to go.
0: That gut. Yeah, that was the gut. You just you showed up on campus. And <laughs> yeah. like Felt it.
1: My mom made me apply to two other schools as like backups, but I no, I got in. I went. I had a great experience.
0: <laughs> it, you just majored in the wrong thing. Basically. I majored in the wrong
1: thing. And all the signs were there. I struggled in my science classes. I aced my humanities. I was like, why wasn't I, if I had been able to step outside of myself and be like, hey, you're really good at this other stuff and you enjoy it and it's easy. Why are you forcing the science thing? But I had it because I grew up with my mom as an artist and she always struggled financially. I had this idea of like, I'm going to do the practical thing and get a good job. And right. yeah, and it just, my heart just wasn't in it.
0: You know, that's interesting too, because it's kind of a curse in a certain way to be of an artistic, um, bearing just because it's so challenging. It's so difficult to make a living.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also challenging emotionally, I think to, to, especially things like writing where you have to put things on the page that like dredge up things that you, most of us would rather just not like engage with on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Sad things, scary things.
0: Right. It's like rigorous in that way. Yeah. Um, but it's like trying to change it or to be otherwise is folly. Yeah. Like you can't, you're, you're living proof of it. You can go and try to major in biology, but it's like you're wearing somebody else's outfit or something. Yeah. It's just never going to fit. Yeah. Um, so at what point then do you start to realize like who you are?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: yeah. So I think the main transition started happening in in, uh, 2001. Uh, I was living with a boyfriend up in Seattle and just had, I'd had this weird sleepless night. I was working, I was working on a research project was uh, part of the spotted owl research that was happening up in the Northwest for the logging industry. Um, So I was part of the government research that was doing the ecological study as a baseline for, I guess, legislation that would come later. So I was doing that. Uh, I was dating a guy that I knew wasn't the right guy. I was living in Seattle where it was like dark and rainy and was super depressing. And I just had this one night where I just didn't sleep. And I was like, I'm in the wrong place. I have to, I have to get out of here. I had this like total freak out. Uh, and so I did, I, I left Seattle. I left the, the guy, day. I left the job. It took a, I mean, it took a couple of weeks to okay. extract myself. It was, it was sloppy. I broke the guy's heart. I like gave no notice at the job. I just freaked out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I came back to California. I was living in my mom's attic. <laughs> to in, be fair, in, it's like a finished attic. It's not... You know, in the Victorian house? In the... This is actually... When we left for college, she sold the place in Santa Rosa and moved to Oakland. Oh, so right. I was okay. with her in Oakland. And then I met my husband, well, my now husband, and he uh, is a filmmaker. And I think his bravery in doing artistic things, like saying, I'm going to do this artistic thing for a living, and living that uh, was kind of an eye opener of like yeah i want to do that too and and he's uh he's always been really supportive the writing thing though really took off when (laughs) i was pregnant and we were living in student housing because my husband was in grad school at stanford and um no one would hire me because i was like visibly pregnant no one wants to hire the pregnant lady and then you know isn't
0: that some bullshit
1: and and there are laws against it, but what are you going to do when you're pregnant? Right, you're like, right. I could take you to court or yeah, I can, I can go. be unemployed for a while and have a baby. <laughs> um, but what I found with this time where I had nothing else to do is that I was just writing. I was writing short stories. I was writing essays. I was, and so when he graduated and we decided to move down to Los Angeles, uh, I decided to apply for writing programs and got into USC.
0: Okay. So- yeah. He was in uh, graduate school Stanford for filmmaking?
1: No, he actually got a degree in filmmaking right out of undergrad. He went to USC, the Peter Stark Producing Program. Uh-huh. So he'd been working in film for a while and then I, we've actually like looked back on this and been like, "Why exactly did you decide to go to business school?" Um, he's so he, as an undergrad he was a double major. He called um economics and um and film studies. Interesting. So he'd gotten the masters in film and then he decided he wanted to go and get a business degree and it's actually worked out great because he he does a lot of consulting work at the intersection of business and art and his his qualifications are really good for it and yeah. it's more or less, you know, allowed me to be writing right now. That's awesome. Which is great. Um but like he'll work with NBC Universal or Disney when they're looking at new ventures and he knows how to crunch the actual numbers on how a new venture might go in an artistic framework because it's all art. Ultimately, how do you sell art? It's, you know, it's that question. Smart guy. He is a very smart guy. And
0: your last name is pronounced Davila. Davila. Yeah. We were talking about this before and uh, I was thinking it's Davila, but that's Spanish.
1: It's Spanish. So my husband was born in Quito, Ecuador. Okay. And his family way back came from a small town called Avila in Spanish sorry in spain so in spanish they were avila and then when they left avila they were de avila
0: i've been to spanish twice
1: <laughs> you've
2: been to and spanish, spanish twice
1: yeah it's nice over there it is it's yeah.
0: beautiful so so de, like of avila
1: of avila so oh, yeah. de avila became davila
0: davila yeah and you guys met in oakland
1: we met in san francisco at our friend's house
0: oh you did okay yeah not like at a rave or...
1: No, no, of, it was just a little house party. That's
0: usually the way it goes, though. It's got to yeah. be some place where you can actually like, talk to somebody.
1: Yeah. Though yeah.
0: so I guess there are always exceptions to every rule. Well,
1: and what's funny is that we'd cross paths lots of times before that night. We've like gone back and done the math of like, you were there and you were there, and um, never noticed each other until that night. Like at parties? At parties or like, he was in a play that my best friend was in and I'd gone to see my best friend in the play. And he was, my friend was like a small part and my now husband was the lead. I don't remember him at all. Interesting. Um, he, he used <laughs> to come to the coffee shop I worked at and work, like do his homework. And I was always there, but we just didn't ever notice each other. I don't think we would have liked each other if we'd met at school. We were, he was a senior when I was a freshman. He was at CMC. I was at Scripps he was the guy who was out like running laps on a Friday afternoon. Cause he had a soccer game like on Sunday he was staying fit for. Uh-huh. And I was the one like throwing beers at the guys who are running laps. Like, <laughs> we would never have gotten along. If that's kind of how my wife
0: and I are. Yeah. I was like, I had like long hair and I was just like a mess, <laughs> just like a hippie in college. Yeah. and college. And I sometimes joke with her. I'm like, what if I would have met you, you know? And she's like, this would not have happened. If yeah. Met. <laughs> um, so that's interesting. And then, You, uh, you obviously had like a good bit of time. I mean, you're having kids and stuff like, um, and, oh, you know what I wanted to ask you? Um, I was just searching for it. Is this idea of being in a coffee shop and not noticing one another? I just want to go off on like a little bit of a tangent because I'm from the Midwest and I just think like, I mean, I, that's what I attribute it to anyway. But like, if I go to a coffee shop regularly or any place of business, And I see the same people regularly in a business context or if I just pass people on the street. Yeah. Like I have neighbors that I'll walk past on a regular basis and like, we don't even say hi.
1: Yeah. Like
0: LA is so weird. It
1: is weird. And then
0: I go into the coffee shop, uh, every morning practically or many mornings, I see the same people and it's, you know, these girls work behind the the counter and I'm always like, morning, morning, what would you have? Blah, blah, blah. Like, Yeah. yeah, thanks. You know, and then you get your, your beverage and then. Uh, one day I was like, "What's your name?" And this person like looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like I was like, "I see you guys every day," and like they, You know, they sort of know my name because I yeah. have like a you know, you have like a little account or whatever.
1: Well, and, and they like put your name on the cups and stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, but
0: like we're in this place. Maybe it's just living in a big city where it's like weird if you like personalize. Like it just seems crazy to me to see the same people like literally every day for years and not introduce yourself Yeah, and to just pretend like, I don't, you know, we don't have to like hang.
2: Right.
1: But first name basis. Like, Hey, how's it going? So, yeah. and so like, I started I'm... trying to do that more too. I entered the librarians. I'm like on first name basis with my librarians now. And I feel pretty good about that. Well, that's like, the way it should be. Yeah. Like, why is it so hard? I see them all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You work in the library?
1: I, my son and I go to the library after school so, and he does his homework and I usually just bring my laptop or whatever. Um, but we're there four days a week. So after like a year of this, right. I was like, what is your name? And I what's see the, you every what's day. The,
0: but I think it's creepier for a guy. That's what I struggle with. Uh, like, I don't want to be the creeper dude.
1: Yeah. But if you're seeing this person every day and you're just like, Hey, yeah. like, so I can actually refer to you as hello. Good morning. Instead of, Hey, you
0: like, I have neighbors that I've walked past and I will be like, Hey, Hey, i am like trying to make the eye contact to like, yeah. you know, and then it's gotten to the point where I've kind of given up. And then there'll be days where we pass each other. We don't say anything. Yeah. It's so fucking weird. And
2: then, then
1: you enter into the phase where it actually is weird. And then you like, don't want to say anything. <laughs> this
0: person's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to know you. It's like, what, I don't, you know, but people have different, uh, cultural traditions around, I guess that I, you know, Midwestern people and my parents are Southern. It's very friendly down there. Yeah. Certain places in the country and in the world are friendlier than others. I believe that. You know, I used to is live...
2: not so friendly. Is it
1: right? It also has this annoying thing where have you... I'm sure you, you've experienced this where you're talking to someone. I find it happens a lot at school events. You're like talking with another parent and they're kind of looking over your shoulder to see if someone more important has like walked into the room.
0: Or they're... Yeah, they're just checking <laughs> out. Like, I'm just like... Yeah. And like the thing... I, you know, uh, I feel like I could write like an entire essay about this. Like the social interactions of adults and maybe parents like adult, but certain, like you, you hit a certain age, you know, your mid thirties into your forties. And, um, especially because of the demands on your time that family places, but also work, it just gets harder to accommodate friendship than it was when you were younger. Yeah, Like in college, it's so easy. It's like all, the, all it's that, all you do. And then in your twenties, it's still happening. And then it starts to fade out because yeah. people couple up and is that how you say it? Couple up, couple yeah. off. You know yeah. what I'm saying? They pair up. Yeah. There you go. Um, and they go into their own little existences and worlds and it gets harder to interact. you know, the phone calls stop coming. Yeah. Like that's, and when you want
1: to get to dinner for, you have to like get plan it three weeks out. Yeah. If that, you know,
0: and, and you live in a big, huge city that makes, I think the logistics of that sort of thing even harder. Yeah. And so I think people just sort of give up and they think. I'm talking well, to this person and nothing's ever going to come of it.
1: I think I've tried to change my mind set around it in that you can't really be close on an everyday basis with people who aren't near you physically speaking. And so I've actually it's one of the things I've been trying to work on in the last 5 years or so is embracing making friends like in my neighborhood. Like, a, like, my neighbor across the street, when we moved in, we both have kids about the same age, and I looked at her, and I was like, we're just going to be friends, okay? Like, that's just going to happen. She comes, she works from home, too, so she comes over, and we do, like, yoga at lunchtime together and, like, trying... Because it's just... You need people that you see every day. We need that as humans. We who, need wait, to, like... Who calls the poses? Oh, we have this little um, app that we do. Oh, okay. It's like a half-hour routine. There's four different versions of it, and we just... And we've done them so many times that we don't have to listen. We just, we're basically, we're just like talking and chatting and like getting some stretching <laughs> in. It's awesome. I love it. And and it's that personal a- interaction, especially as writers. I feel like it's so easy to just, you know, hole up in your yeah. little cubby and not mm-hmm. look at anybody. And I think that's why a lot of us get really depressed because proven fact, like humans need to like look in each oh, other's I'm, eyes and have conversations. I just read
0: this the other day that like human interaction and connectivity Um, Like lack of it is as bad as like smoking two packs a day. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a leading indicator for mortality. Like if people are like social isolates. Yeah. um, I always
1: talk about that study when we were kids in the eighties, there was the anti-drug campaign and they had an ad with a mouse in the cage, like hitting the, The button for the cocaine and not eating and not drinking until it died and what they never showed
0: wait i didn't see this you never
1: saw that ad i remember when i was a kid it was an ad and it's just this like sad little mouse in an empty cage like hitting the button like more cocaine more cocaine but what they didn't show is the second half of the study where they put that same mouse in a in a cage with like toys and other mice and it ignored the cocaine button it was like when you're isolated and alone like, of course you would turn to drugs. Of course we turn to alcohol. Of course we get depressed. Like we are, we evolved as a community. You can't just do. suddenly remove do yourself. Do people do
0: cocaine alone? I, I, I guess they do. I think people do. Damn. Yeah. That's hardcore. I feel like most of the time uh, I've seen people do that. It's always been like in party atmospheres, but yeah. I guess what I would say is that maybe it's possible to feel alone in a crowd. I think that, Yeah. I think that, um, I was reading something about, conversation just like this. And, uh, I'm forever like analyzing why I do this because <laughs> it is weird <laughs> admittedly to be, you know, interviewing people for 10 years in your garage. It's I like not it's normal. Great. Yeah. But I'm like, I, I'm curious about why, like, what is it in me that makes me want to do this and to continue to do this? And, uh, I was reading something that like, Made some sense to me, where the person was like, you know, the the proper exercise for the mind, or like the the best and like most efficient exercise for the mind, uh, is conversation. Yeah, like actual conversation, real conversation. And I think maybe with the advent of technology, or it could be something as uh, fundamental as just like not being like comfortable emotionally, like being too anxious socially, or you know, repressed because you don't want to deal with things or scared of what other people are going to think of you. I can think of that when you're younger, Yeah. but like just feeling that kind of loneliness and isolation, even when you might be in proximity to other people, yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have like open exchange. Yeah. And then you couple that, uh, with technology, Yeah. smartphones, laptops, another barrier. Alexa, you know, it's like, Oh my God, you know, people to have an uninterrupted conversation of any kind uh, with any kind of measure of depth and candor is fucking rare.
1: It is more and more rare.
0: You know, people don't talk Yeah, and they, they text, they, they might email and like, look, if you have this great epistolary relationship, I think that can be intimate and like yeah. nourishing in a similar way. But how many of us are really like pen paling like that? Yeah. You know, so- I have
1: heard that uh, things like FaceTime can trigger some of the same, um, neural buttons as a actual face-to-face. So I think that like a lot of... You see, like there's a new app about uh, therapists. You can do like a FaceTime with your therapist, that kind of thing. And I, from the studies I've read show that that actually... There's something about seeing the facial expressions of the person that you're talking to that, that does kind of start to bridge that gap, Yeah, which I think is interesting.
0: Yeah. I was joking about uh, after my exit from social media, I was like, the next year of my life, I'm, I'm going to FaceTime people exclusively. Oh, cool. As like an experiment.
1: Yeah. Interesting. I'm joking. I get intimidated. I was like, when you said that, I'm like, I, I don't <laughs> think I could do that.
0: I think that if I started FaceTiming people, like without announcing it, you know, as I'm doing right now, but if I just like... <laughs> Start a cold everybody just start facetiming friends out of the blue that i haven't seen since like college like hey (laughs) that's actually kind of fun that would
1: be actually a fun experiment (laughs) you could write something about that
0: i mean and do it for a year yeah and see if you can get anybody hooked who like actually wants to facetime with you
1: well and but like kid that's what the kids are doing now like my daughter she doesn't call anybody she facetimes
0: well that's good with all of her friends maybe nature maybe this is like an adaption like maybe maybe this is a like an like an evolution of the species. Like it's like, we something in us is realizing that we are malnourished in this way. And yeah. so the adaptive behavior is to switch from texting to FaceTime. Maybe, but maybe once like she gets a little older, she'll be like, I'm tired of people. I'm going to text now.
1: Maybe we'll see, you
0: know, <laughs> which I feel like a lot of people, because you know, like, the phone rings and I get anxious.
1: Yeah. Or, or the, the very prospect of like calling somebody even for like a dinner reservation. It's like, can I do that online?
0: (laughs) You know what I do? I'm going to like, I like have friends that I really feel bad about losing touch with. And I'm like, I need to, I need to catch up with that person. And I'll be like walking around. Usually I'm walking the dog. That's like the time when I could do it at night. And I'm like, I should call. And then I'm like, (sighs) Like they're going to probably let it go to voicemail.
2: Yeah.
1: Or they're or, trying to put their kids to bed. And or... like, what are we going
0: to talk about? Like, I feel like the, the shine is off the diamond on phone calls. Like, I the...
1: actually really like long emails at this point. Yeah. I will sit down and write almost like I used to do, or my mom used to do with letters. Like actually sit down and be like, Hey, I was thinking about you and here's what's going on in my life. And what are you, and surprising people will actually respond in kind. It takes a few days cause they're like, you know, you need some time to compose it, but. that's actually kind of nice. Yeah.
0: That way they have their own time. I guess like that's kind of a theory of the case behind text messages is that like you can get it and you can like choose to respond. I mean, you let a call go to voicemail, but like a phone call feels like a commitment. And it's so weird because it used to be so normal. Yeah. Just call people. Yeah. How's it going? Like my parents are still like, I think that generation they still have a landline, and oh, yeah, they love a phone call. how you doing? you know <laughs> and they always answer like they yeah, never just yeah. like, oh, just let it go there unless it's like a it says like telemarketer right, but if it's like a person, they know they could be in the middle of like hosting a dinner party, and they'll be like, oh hi, and they'll talk yeah. for like ten minutes and then hang up.
2: yeah,
0: it's crazy to me, but um I was once told uh that i was i like I once had a uh, person be like, you're good at the phone. Like you, you know, you're good at talking on the phone. I remember that.
1: I've had people tell me that I'm not really like straight up. I'm, I know I'm not because I, I, when I can't see with someone's face, I always talk over them because it's that awkward thing where you both start talking at the same time. Every line of a phone conversation with me is like that. It's so
0: awkward. Yeah. That's a lot of reason why uh, I don't like doing interviews over the transom.
1: Yeah. That's why I was really glad I could actually come because The idea of doing a a phone interview is kind of mortifying to me because I I just, I need, I need facial cues. I need to (laughs) to be in the space. Otherwise it just, it's awkward and painful for everybody.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm thinking back and it's like, wow, maybe I'm good at being on the phone. I'm missing, like, this is what I'm talented at.
1: Well, I've listened to a lot of your interviews and if you do do some of them over the phone, I can't tell the difference. So you must be.
0: Well, the sound quality, this was, you know, every once in a while I'll do one. Usually it's like a book club author, but uh, I much prefer having people in here.
1: Yeah. makes sense.
0: I think it's like a better, it's just a better experience all around and it's better right. sound, you know? So, um, take me to the point in time where you started working on your book. Cause like we're, yeah. we're covering like a lot of time. You're 42 now yeah. and you said it earlier. So I'm not like, yeah, yeah, you. I
2: um
0: some people are funny about their age. Some people are worried about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't care, but, um, I respect the fact that some people don't like that stuff to be public, but, Anyway, um you you know, you come out of college, you do this science thing for a bit, you decide it's not for you, you flounder in your mother's <laughs> attic, you meet your husband, you get married, you get pre- it sounds like you got pregnant because he was in student housing.
1: Um well, so He went back to grad school later. Oh, okay. So we actually, we got married in 2004 and my daughter came 2007. Okay. Um, So yeah, for, I guess that like seven years in terms of career, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so going back to grad school to study writing. And for me, I felt like it was important. I had a lot of people who made, I think is a very valid argument that you don't have to go to school for writing. I think that's absolutely true. But for me, because my training was as a scientist and all my writing was just kind of off the cuff um, I wanted some formal training in it. And more than that, I wanted the two years to just kind of set aside to practice writing. Uh, so that was a great experience. I wrote the first draft of the novel.
0: And you went to USC.
1: I went to USC. And MPW.
0: The M- the MPW, the now defunct.
1: Yes. So R.I.P. you were there towards the end. I was. Yeah, I think it folded just a couple of years after I graduated.
0: Got in under the wire.
1: Yeah. I had a good group. There a lot of us who uh, came out of that group that are publishing things uh, like Amy Meyerson was a friend of mine. We continued to be in a writing group after that. Her second book is coming out in May. Um, Eric Brock, Brian McGacken. There's just, there are a lot of us who are in that cohort. It was a good group. Um, But that was when I wrote, you had to write a draft of a novel to graduate. You only had to have a hundred, hundred pages I think it was so it wasn't a complete novel but it, it was a it, it, totally different story it's like almost not even the same novel I just had this instinct of like I want to write a novel and then so I just started writing and it was just a hot mess I mean I got the hundred pages done but it took me a long time to kind of figure out what I wanted to say
0: yeah so I, I just know. kind
1: of kept rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it so many times
0: now yeah, you're preaching to the choir here yeah. it takes a while, but that's, takes I, a think while. That's, I think that's just normal yeah and I think that's just, cold. especially
1: for a first novel, I think like right. now I, I actually am almost done with the draft of my second novel already. Cause I just, I had this sense of like, I knew what I wanted it to be. I understand the theme. Like it just all kind of came together in my head, but this first one, I just wanted to write. So I just started writing no outline, no ideas. No.
0: Does anybody really read those? theses like me. Oh, I hope
1: not. God.
0: Right. You bind them up. You hand them in. I don't think anybody <laughs> even looks at them. They're like, okay, yeah. she got the page count. Yeah. Page counts there. It's like flipping through. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. hundred pages.
1: Totally different story.
0: But it was a good two years.
1: It was a very good two years. You
0: got the space to do your thing. You met yeah. some other writers,
1: met some other writers, had some good mentors. Janet Fitch was one of my teachers there and she continued to be a mentor afterwards. She's been great. Um, And then i was pregnant when i graduated with my son so that got a little messy (laughs) like
0: in terms of being able to write yes oh or the childbirth itself (laughs) well all it
1: was a rough pregnancy i was on bed rest for like three months and Uh. then and then he had a really rough start so it just it was very rough six months um and i was freelancing and then the freelancing actually kind of started to take off and then my best client when my son was i think three months old my best client Asked me if I would come out as a full time employee. So I took a full time job. My husband quit his job and he did some indie filmmaking. So we've kind of had this very fortuitous balance where, you know, when I was in grad school, he was working at NBC and then I took a marketing PR job and he quit his job and did like his indie artistic dream stuff. And then when I was ready to just run my car into a wall cause I was hating my job so much. Uh, he got this consulting work came up and so I was able to quit and finish the novel. And right. so it's okay. been a really good partnership in that way. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. You know, and it's like kind of what it takes. You have to find the you have to find the time somehow.
1: Yeah. Well, that whole time I was getting up at 5am to write before the kids woke up. And I mean, like you, like you need any more distractions when you have like two kids under three, right? It's I just wasn't sleeping. Yeah. So tired all the time. And i uh
0: how do you how do we do it? You just do it it's a, you just you, do it, you're yeah.
1: compelled. I think that's that artistic drive,
0: but I mean, and, with the kids too, like just like to operate at, like especially in those early years at that level of sleep deprivation,
2: yes, how do you do
0: it? You just find a way and you you're like, do. and I
2: want to write a novel, yeah,' right like- <laughs> now.
0: <laughs> this is the time.
2: Ah, oh,
1: those are rough years. I do remember oh, my son was about two. And I remember having the, like, I can't do it anymore. I'm, I quit. Like I, I was ready to quit, but I woke up every morning at five and my husband knew that I did this. And so I wanted to tell him, I was like, honey, just so you know, like if you roll over and I'm still in bed at six I'm just, I think I'm done. I don't think I can do it anymore. And he was like, what? <laughs> you can't quit. And he just was so like genuinely shocked that I would let go of this dream of finishing my book, and to have that mirrored back at me, I was like, okay, I think I can keep going. Little
0: little shame, (laughs) little shame, but also not even shame.
1: It was just like you can't give up. You want this so much. Don't give up.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's great, though. Yeah. Once again, I mean, like in terms of like the symbiosis, like like helping like helping defend each other's time. Like through work stuff and oh, then also, yeah. um, you know, talking them down off the ledge when they're, yeah. when you're ready to like throw in the towel. Yeah. <laughs> I just mix metaphors really bad. <laughs> if you're up on the ledge and you have a towel in your hand. And you're
1: just going to throw it.
0: <laughs> you're just going to throw it off the ledge. That'll show them. Um, and so then talk about like the, you know, like when you started to feel like your book was congealing. Yeah. It, that's a nice feeling. It is a nice as feeling. As I recall yeah. from a long time ago, but You know, when you've been working on something for a long time and you've had to go through this sort of messy drafting and um, creative process, but then once you feel like, okay, this is actually a thing, it's coming together. It's turning
1: into something. I know where
0: it's going. Yeah. And then, like, take us from that stage of the process through, like, the end of it to getting it published.
1: Okay. Um, So the congealing. So I've been working on these drafts, and I tend to work all the way through a draft and then read it, see what I've got, go back to the beginning and do it again. And around 2016 kind of realized what I was writing about. And this is, I mean, it seems so obvious now looking back. I, so my story is set on an ostrich farm. Um, How and, did you wind up there? <laughs> that's a whole other story. Uh, the very short version is that the story was very loosely based on my mom growing up on a dairy farm. I wanted to tell my mom's story. Where did she go? Very grow loosely in Sacramento Valley. Oh, okay. In the dairy, da- dairy farm in the Sacramento Valley. Um, but I wanted to write it in the desert because I'd fallen in love with the desert when I was down here in Claremont for undergrad. And so I asked my mom, is there any way there'd be a dairy farm out in the desert? And she said, absolutely no way. And then I was being stubborn and trying to prove her wrong. And I was Googling for like ranches in the Mojave. And I came across this ostrich farm. And when I went out there, I was like, I just knew Like I saw these birds Once and again, I was like, Oh the- my God, these yeah. guys are great. Yeah. Cause they're such contradictory. They're like, they're beautiful, but they're scary. And they're, They're graceful, but they're deadly. They're like all these wonderful contrasts. Can an
0: ostrich kill
1: you? Oh, yeah. They have these like gnarly big claws on their toes and they kick forward. Johnny Cash was almost killed by an ostrich, but the claw hit his belt buckle. So it only cut him like six inches above the belt buckle, but would have just totally disemboweled him if he hadn't been wearing like his big fat. They can kill you easy. Fuck. I know. So I saw them and I'm like, this is a place for a story about conflicted people, right? Because there are all these contradictions. So the guy was really nice. I think he was kind of lonely because he would just welcome me out and he'd walk me around and tell me all these stories about the birds and the farm and his family. And, um, so yeah, so that's how it ended up on the ostrich farm. Um, so, and then after years and years of writing drafts and drafts, I realized that like the, the thing that my story was really about was about the women of these family having to pull their heads out of the sand and face reality. I mean, that metaphor of like, get your head out of the sand. And I'm like, oh my God, I've been writing a book about this for so long. I didn't even realize (laughs) that's what I was writing. (laughs) And then once that clicked into place, I went through and it was like, basically there, I just had to revise a little bit and kind of tweak certain spots, put a little bit of sympathy for the villain and, you know, wrap it up. So, I wrapped it up in December of 2017. And then I got my agent in like a week. It happened so fast.
0: How did you get that?
1: So, I actually had met him when I was in grad school. And he had said, you know, when it's done, send me the first couple of pages. It was very off the cuff, like, sure, yeah, send me a query letter. And so I kept his card and I, and he would, I've been researching agents and I, I had this whole, I'm big on spreadsheets. So I had this whole spreadsheet of all the agents I thought would be good matches and their you know requirements for submission and all this, but he was Wait, top.
0: Do you have a podcaster spreadsheet or? No,
1: oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. This is really <laughs> the only one I was like, I'm doing this one.
2: <laughs> that um, makes me feel good. I'm
1: glad to hear that. I'm very excited to be here. But he had said, yeah, send me a couple pages. So what, nine years later, I sent him an email, and I was like, you probably don't remember me, but you said I could send you a... Because I pitched it to him. I pitched it. And that was even like before the story what was done. What did you done. pitch
0: him? Was it any, anything close to what the book wound up be, being?
1: Um, I mean, yeah, the basic pitch was a uh, young woman inherits grandmother's ostrich ranch, and then the birds stop laying eggs. And she wants to sell the ranch, but doesn't know how. So it wasn't exactly that, but the basic elements were there. And he'd said, Yeah, send it to me when you're ready. So I like put together the very pol- you know how you do, you put all the polished summary in the query letters all perfect and had like five people read it, make sure there were no typos and <laughs> but I sent it to him and he emailed back almost immediately and was like, Yeah, send me the first couple chapters. So I sent him the first couple chapters. The next day he requested the full and on Friday he offered to read me. He was like, I want it.
2: That's awesome.
1: It was totally awesome. And very unusual. Like, What's his that. name, may I ask? Uh, Joel Gottler. Okay. Uh, and he actually he does a lot of film rights. He works with a lot of books that he thinks have potential as film. And then he also has a partner in New York whose name is Murray. And he does a lot of the actual like New York literary side of it. So they're a really good team. Um, and they gave me some really good notes on it that I worked on a few of those. And then they shopped it around. Um, but publishing so slow. I mean, that was January of 2018. And here we are, 2020.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, it takes time. It
1: takes time. Did the
0: sales process take time, or did that happen faster? No,
1: that took time. That took, like, six
2: months. Yeah.
1: And we got a lot of conflicting. You know, one editor loved the characters, but wasn't feeling the story. And the other was like, the story's great, but I don't really feel the characters. And I, I remember asking my agent, asking Joel at some point, like, should I do revisions? You know, should I edit? He's like, you know, if we were getting the same feedback from everybody, I would say yes. But, and then... Uh, Kensington bought it, and so they're publishing it. It's coming out end of the month.
0: Okay. So during the six, cause six months, I went through a somewhat similar process. Like the six-month wait. Uh, that That's a be, terrible time. It's terrible. Yeah. You have no control. Your Most days just passed. You get no news. Yeah. Nothing's happening. Yeah. You're worried. Mm-hmm. Is that how it was? Oh yeah. And so how did you handle it? Well
2: especially it? because
1: like the agent process was so fast, I was like, oh this is just gonna this is just gonna <laughs> happen for me. You
0: can't get it that good all by <laughs> three.
1: Um yeah, no, I would worry, but I worry by writing. So I just worked on novel number two.
0: Look at you being so
1: I get anxious when I don't write. It really is like my grounding. So um, I had this idea. And and because it took me so long to write the ostrich book, whenever I would get to the point where you just feel like you're going to throw up when you look at it, I would just put it aside for a little bit and I would work on the outline for this new book. Um, Because the first book I didn't outline, I promised myself I'd never do that again. So on this other book, I didn't write anything. I just worked on the ideas and I kind of put it all into an outline. And every time I went back to it, it, the outline would kind of double in length. And by the time I had an agent on the first book, my outline was 60 pages long. Whoa. So, yeah. That's so I an outline. Basically, it was just like filling in the scenes. Like, it was just all in my head. It was perfectly formed. All I had to do was write it. And, so And so, just that. to be
0: clear, you did not do an outline for this novel. No. But the second one, you're like, I'm going to outline it.
1: I'm going to outline it to hell and back. And I did. And it,
0: has it been a markedly better experience? So much better.
1: Because I could see where the holes were before I had spent years writing them. You know, I would write out a scene and be like, why does she do that? You know, sometimes as a writer, you're like, I want them to go that way. Yeah. But it's not really what the story needs. Well,
0: I've always thought this, like, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think I'm going to outline my book now because you said that
1: I, I it was such a good experience, but, then I started writing book number three without a single out, like page of outline. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows where it's all going to go?
0: Well, but I the uh, the corollary that I'm um, drawing in my head is to um, is when filmmakers um, storyboard. Oh yeah. Like so, I want to say the Coen Brothers storyboard meticulously their entire film shot by shot. So they'll have like a storyboard artist draw up each frame basically. They
1: know what they want it to look like.
0: And. I think about like, the, especially with the cost that you're dealing with when it comes to like major filmmaking, Yeah, the millions of dollars that get spent, the, the dozens and dozens of crew members and yeah. everybody getting paid, like to go into a filmmaking process. And I know like there are different ways to skin the cat. Like Robert Altman had no idea. He would just like make it up on the set, you huh. know, but it seems to me like it makes a lot of sense to be like, yeah, we we know exactly how we want it to look. We thought it all through before we started spending money. Yeah. <laughs> like before, and, and in the case of writing a novel or a memoir or something, it's like, we thought it all through before we started spending time. Yeah. Which they say is money. Yeah. Right. Well,
1: in the film industry
2: definitely yeah.
0: is. Yeah. So I don't know. I I guess like I can be convinced of the merits of outlining, even if it's like, it winds up being a throwaway. Like even if the 60 pages that you do, you know, the book itself actually deviates wildly from that. Like it's still, I think, in a lot of ways, a worthy exercise. Yeah. You know, right.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. But yeah. Well, and I think three... it gives you room to deviate. It, you've thought through different versions of things and you, I, I, I one writer I admire says it's a, what do you say? Something about a roadmap it's like a roadmap. It's not, you know, it's not step-by-step directions, but it kind of gives you like the map of like, okay, I kind of know what's over here and I kind of know what's over here. Yeah. And and when I wrote out of that 60 page outline, a lot of things changed. Sure. But it was very comforting to have it. So why aren't helpful. you
0: doing it for the third book?
1: You know, I, um... I decided with a friend of mine to do Nano NaNoWriMo. Okay. And, um...
0: Which is, uh, for people who don't know, it's, uh, what, you write a book in a month?
1: The National Novel Writing Month. Yeah. You're supposed to... It's not a novel. It's 50,000 words is the goal.
0: Still. That's that's a novel. It's
1: a good chunk. Yeah. Uh, it's a really good start. No, they are and novels so, that are 50,000 words. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Who, you just recently had a woman on who her book was, like, too short to be a novel. Yeah. I mean, I, I think
0: these distinctions are murky, yeah. you know, because... What? Like, uh, I think I said in that conversation that, uh... What is it? Animal Farm is like thirty-two thousand right. words. The Great yeah. The Great Gatsby is forty-seven thousand. It blew words.
1: my mind. Yeah, that's so short.
0: That's so short. But I mean, really, not. It's too like fifty thousand words is two hundred pages.
1: Yeah.
0: Two hundred page novel's fine.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, if the you have to do what the story needs. That's right. If that's the story, why would you balloon it with another hundred thousand words? Well, why am crazy. I so
0: committed to short books? You got to do what the story needs. But I have this yeah. ideal in my head of like, I'm constantly anxious about being too long winded.
1: I I have that problem too. And my work tends to be a little too um, truncated for it. I'm actually trying to embrace letting myself have some space to yeah. be a little more literary, like lyrical, a little just, more lyrical. I mean, yeah. I don't want to go overboard, but right. I think a little more space might be nice.
0: Yeah. It's like there's some, like for me anyway, there's like some element of like self-loathing. Like, oh, just shut up.
1: Yeah. There's that that little voice in your head of like, nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody cares.
0: (laughs) Just quit. We get it. You can make pretty sentences. Like shut up. Tell us what happens. Yeah, exactly. I got somewhere to be. I'm on a, I'm in like an air, you know, an airport.
1: It's the same voice. Yeah. So I've been trying, I've been actively trying to quiet that voice a little more and take a little space. You can always edit it later. I always tell myself, you can always edit it out later go for it. Like, describe the tree. Take a moment. <laughs> Who knows?
2: Um, all right. Oh, but so, NaNoWriMo. Okay. So oh, yeah.
1: I, yeah, I just decided to do that with her and I had this idea for number three. It's just like a little zygote of an idea right now, but I just, just started writing. I did it all longhand, which I've never done before. I would just go like hole up in a coffee shop and just write and write and write. I've never do, been that person. How do you know you
0: got 50,000 words? Were you counting the words? Oh,
1: I, so I would count. Like three lines and average them and, you know, and then just take a rough guess. Okay. So rough guess.
0: Yeah. 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 And yeah. then the second book, where, where is that
2: one?
1: It's almost done. I'm actually hoping to have, so this is the second draft that I'm doing now and I'm almost done with the second draft. And my husband's always my first reader because he asks really good questions. I'll always be like, why did she do that? I don't understand. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping to hand it to him when I leave town for my very modest book tour. Where are you going? Uh, basically just up the West coast, visiting friends and family. And then my publisher set up readings in those cities. So I'll be in San Francisco, Santa Rosa, Portland, Seattle.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Well, you gotta be like, you know, representing the West coast. Yeah. Um, you have a tattoo on your right wrist. I do. I'm always like, I often ask people if I can see them, what their tattoos are all about. What is this? Can you describe this tattoo?
1: Uh, it's an OM symbol from the Buddhist tradition. Okay. It's Sanskrit. Are you Buddhist? I am. Are you? Yeah, I am.
0: Like, how did you get into that?
1: Um,
0: I I guess you're from Northern California. I'm from
1: Northern California. (laughs) I didn't grow up with it, but my husband and I went to a class. I I don't know if you know about Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Yeah, sure. Up in Northern California. Yeah, it's so beautiful up there. And when we were living in San Francisco, we went up there and took a class. And um, it's just kind of built since then. That would have been like 2002.
0: Who did you take a class from?
1: Oh, I don't even remember who that class was from. I do remember the first day long I did was with Jack Kornfield, who I like now know is like this huge name in Western meditation. And I was like, yeah, this guy seems nice. I had no idea what a, what big figure he was, but it was such a peaceful, wonderful experience. And what I've come to.
0: But how did you even get to like, let's go to spirit rock.
1: Oh, how did we, I don't even remember. I think I'd always been kind of curious.
0: And you live in San Francisco.
1: And we live in San You know, it's around, it's there. But then once it kind of, and then did that experience, was never really dedicated about a meditation practice. And then kind of hit some tough times like five, six years ago, which actually, <laughs> come to think of it, it might've actually been spurred by the meditation class I took. I took a class called the meaningful life, which was a meditation class, Yeah, but he, um, it was a very deep diving class. It was very, we were expected to meditate every day and then um, for 25 minutes. And then we would get together once a month and we would talk about like what it means to really kind of dig deep down into what's going on in your head and in your heart. And I just kind of, I don't know. And this is when I was working the job that I hated and just kind of came to that truth of like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm very unhappy. And when you can acknowledge that it can kind of snowball on you. And all of a sudden, it seems even harder to go to work now that you've acknowledged that you hate it. And
2: you're like,
0: now I actually know how much I hate this. <laughs> yes. So when you say tough times, like that's what it was. It was work stuff.
1: It was work. Uh, it was family. I mean, um, going through stuff with. I mean, I mentioned that my son's birth was really hard, and there was a lot of stuff in his uh, development when he was younger that was really tough, and just kind of felt like everything. And very midlife crisisy. Like, just, am I in the right place? What am I doing? I haven't finished my novel. I. <laughs> I'm, I'm, am
0: i going through a midlife crisis because i'm i've been like this forever i feel like i've been in a midlife crisis my whole fucking life <laughs> mm,
1: i don't know what to say to that do, um, do people but i mean it be like, a midlife crisis if it's your whole life i don't, I don't know. know
0: i don't know you know i'm like I, but i just don't feel like i've ever really felt solid like oh like this is it everything feels so slippery and ephemeral and fleeting and well. Confusing.
1: I think that's kind of why I landed on Buddhism because it embraces that. Right. Yeah.
0: But I like, I look to other people. I'm like, do you, are you standing like, Do you have this figured out? Like, oh, is there God. something I'm missing?
1: I would do that. All, like I would go to work and I'd be like, you people come here. I mean, counting myself. I was there too, but we come here every day and we do this shit. Like, why are we, Why do, are you struggling with this? And I would look <laughs> around and they all looked like they were having a nice day. Like, why is nobody else tortured like this? Yeah. And then and through the meditation was like, I don't know, kind of exercised it, I guess, like to feel the, all those feelings and kind of, and then some of the things was, I actually did need to change my life. That job wasn't a good fit for me, but then also just feeling some of those things and allowing myself to feel them and recognizing, and, that, and recognizing them. that I was feeling them right. somehow they had, they, they, over time, they had less pull on me. Um,
0: I find that like when I go, um, like I'll meditate in the morning. And then I'll go like really early and then I'll go walk the dog. And usually I'm hiking and it's like, I kind of, I call it like letting out the ghosts or whatever, but like, I'll be walking and I'll just like, I'll have entire arguments or entire, like entire scenes will play out in my head. Like, you know, that are tied to worry or frustration or some regret or whatever it is that we torture ourselves with, but like, I'll catch myself. And what I find is like after that process, it's like, oh, okay. I like sort of let them Go crazy and yeah. saw them, and then yeah. after that happens, it usually makes for a better day. Yeah, but it's a, it's astonishing to me. Well, I think that that happens
2: at least in <laughs> my
1: experience. that's a, a lot of what meditation is. Is like my head will just run off on these arguments. You're never going to have the tragedies that are never going to happen, and then you can be like, "Oh, that was weird." Yeah, and kind of come back to yourself, and I don't know. I find it very grounding.
0: Yeah, me too. I think like, it's just funny to me that like, I think a lot of the time we have, even today, not that I have it, like, I don't have it licked, you know, like I can have (laughs) those things happen and not recognize that I'm having them happen, Yeah. which I think is what meditation is useful for or part of what it's useful for. Um, But it just like shows me like, wow, my mind is doing a number on me, like almost always. Yeah. And it can't just be me.
1: Oh, it's not just you.
0: You know, so we're all doing this. Like we're in nuts.
1: Yeah. Well, and the fact that, I mean, you read these studies that talk about how you're your brain and your physiological makeup, the neurochemistry doesn't know the difference between a memory and something actually happening. So if you remember something that's sad, like your physiologically, like the hormones that are distributed through your body are the same as if something sad is actually happening. Or if you remember something scary, or if you're angry about something like your body doesn't know the difference. Yeah. And so like we, when we, when our heads are running wild like that, it's not just our heads, like our whole bodies, yeah. the stress and the stress hormones that come with it. And just like, I, I don't know. It's, it's overwhelming.
0: I can be really amazing in my own head if I'm arguing or if I'm like, sometimes it'll just be like me having a conversation <laughs> with somebody, like for some reason, it will be somebody at work or somebody, you know, one of these neighbors I want to meet, like I'll say something in my head. I'll say something yeah. perfect yeah. that I would never actually have the presence of mind to say in real life. Yeah. You sort of like have these like great moments and you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Like building up this whole scene. in like, my Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so what does your uh, Buddhist practice look like? Like, do you have like a regimen?
1: Um, For a long time, for like three years now, I've been getting up early. I like to, I get my coffee, I totally ignore my phone. I get my coffee, I write a page in my journal, I sit for like 10, 15 minutes. Um, But what's happening, I have to... All things are impermanent. <laughs> things are changing. My daughter is now getting up for zero period because she's playing sports. And so like now she's, she's in getting up space. for what? For zero? zero period. What is that? It's like uh, the period before first period. Oh, it's gosh. when like the sports teams. Yeah. Like she's just doing basketball. And so she has to be at school. Seven, so she's getting up at six with me, and it's like, oh, you're in my space. And even if I'm not in the same space as her, there's this like mom thing where I'm like,
0: yeah, you got to be on. I kind
1: of yeah, I'm on. It's not it's not quiet time anymore, so I either have to start getting up earlier, or I think your daughter's
0: going to have to quit playing basketball. She's just going
1: to quit (laughs) basketball. (laughs) But I do I do have to kind of rethink because I've noticed in the past, well, since uh, winter break, since she's been playing basketball, that my routine's just been all jacked up. So I have to I have to readjust somehow because I haven't been sitting regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do
0: you read in that space at all? No, no. I read
1: everywhere else.
0: Everywhere else. Yeah.
1: Okay. I like, always have a book with me, or I I listen to a lot of books. Um, I read a lot.
0: But I think you know, writers have to read a lot. I know, but you said like you and just so that we're clear, you're not reading about like Buddhism stuff or anything.
1: No, I actually I am. Um, right now I'm training to be a meditation teacher. Oh really? So I, I actually do have like homework that's about like it, it's very um, secular. So it's it's not Buddhist teaching so much as just mindfulness. It's very based in. What you, in are you doing? Like
0: MB, MS, MBSR or whatever? No,
1: it's similar. Um, but this is actually through Jack Cornfield is set up through Sounds True, and it's a, it's an online course. But uh, we meet with mentors, and the and Jack does lectures twice a month, and. Um, it's very involved actually. It's, it's been really interesting to dive deeper and kind of look at the flip side of this because I've taken a lot of meditation classes, but to suddenly look at like, what, what does it take to teach a meditation class?
0: The spiritual industrial complex?
1: I guess. (laughs) Yeah. We could do worse. I think in this world.
0: Yeah. Right. Let's try that one out. Uh, well, it's been fun talking with you.
1: Yeah, likewise. And Thanks congratulations
0: on uh, your success with your book, and like how productive you seem to be. Uh, you know, with what two more books in the offing? Hopefully. And yeah. uh, I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you. All right, that's April Davila. Her novel is called "142 Ostriches." It's out there from Kensington Press. That was fun, right? Her website is aprildavila.com. She's on Facebook, she's on Instagram, she's on Pinterest, and uh, her Twitter handle is at April Davila. One more time that novel is called 142 Ostriches. Go get your copy right now. Why not, right? If you want to write to me, uh, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Thanks to Tiger in my tank for that interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you want to support the show, if you like the program and you want to throw a few bucks in the hat, tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com slash Don't forget about the Other People app. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get the app. It's free. It's free. Uh... Aaron Eileen Almond is coming up on Wednesday. What do you think about this? Another Sunday episode. I squeezed one in. I've just been doing a lot of interviews. I got a lot in the can. I want to try to, like, speed up the, uh the output. I can't promise you that I'll be able to do a Sunday episode every Sunday, but I'm just in one of these phases where it's happening. So can we just agree to that? So yeah, Erin Eileen Almond, who is uh, married to Steve Almond, who has been a guest on this program, she has a novel out. There's a funny story about how she wound up guesting on the show, and I'll uh, I'll share that with you. On Wednesday. Alright? Otherwise, you know, wash your fucking hands. Just constantly wash your hands. While singing Happy Birthday. Twice. Dude, cough into your elbow.
2: <laughs>